0: I still meet so many people in my generation that just really have no idea about what these men and women went through, what what their roles were. As a result of this project, I'm hoping that this will make my generation and hopefully future generations more connected to this generation and wanting to know more of what they did. The sad fact is as Remembrance Days pass, there's gonna be fewer and fewer of these veterans left. And I think it's up to us now to make a more conscious effort to learn their stories, so, that when there are none left, we can still picture someone who served, maybe a family member, maybe just someone we've heard an interview of, and really think of what they did to make us the country we are today and to ensure the freedom we have today. If we can hold on to a personal story and put ourselves in their shoes, that's really helping. And that's really making sure that we hold on to that history and don't lose it, which I think is quite possible if we don't make the conscious effort.
1: For the past five years, filmmaker Eric Brunt, formerly of Victoria, has been crisscrossing the country, capturing the stories of World War II veterans. With an average age of 97, Eric is racing against the clock to date, having documented over 450 veteran stories. We'll hear some of those stories, both from Eric and some of the veterans themselves, on this edition of Today in BC. Thanks for joining us today, Eric.
0: Thanks for having me so much, Peter. When we spoke
1: on the podcast last year, you were getting ready to head out across the country for a second time to document more stories from the remaining World War II vets that you could track down. Could you update us on that?
0: Yeah, when we last talked, I was getting ready to go across the country. It wasn't the most ideal time of the year because we were heading into winter, but just when everything fell into place. So I did complete that journey. As a result, I've now interviewed a total of 507 Second World War veterans. So I had that goal of 500, and I hit it, which was quite nice. This trip across, it was definitely a different one, and it's getting just a lot harder to find these men and women. I saw a more recent statistic from Veterans Affairs the other day, and Veterans Affairs combines, for whatever reason they decided to do this, World War II veterans and Korean veterans together. So the latest number from them is the total of these war service veterans, as they call them, is 9,000. 297 so that's both world war ii and korea so the number for world war ii is going to be even smaller than that when i started this project i think the number of world war ii veterans they were estimating was around thirty-five thousand. so in these past few years we've really seen a real drop in the numbers just because the the fact of life is that not many of these veterans do live past 100 years of age this trip was more about really going to far-flung places that I maybe hadn't seen the first time around and doing only one interview in that town. Whereas the first big trip for 13 months between 2018 and 2019, I would be in the town for maybe four days and get as many veterans as I could. Drove through some winter storms in Alberta, which was always fun, testing out those winter tires. Being from Victoria, you don't get to test those out too often. It was great though, and I still got to meet a lot of really interesting men and women. Many of them had never shared their story before. Got to see as far north as Flin Flon, which was cool. Right now, the big thing is I'm editing all the interviews that I've done I'm sending those off on big hard drives to the Canadian War Museum in Ottawa, which is backing up everything on their side, archiving it, and eventually going to make it available to the public through a digital exhibition and also as a database that the average Canadian can go into and access these interviews.
1: For folks who don't know how all of this began... The project started by you talking to veterans at some of the legions on Vancouver Island, and then the word just spread.
0: The very first thing was the passing of my grandfather, and that would have happened when I was in university. He was a man that didn't share too much about his history, and he'd been in the war for five years, never really wore his medals. I think it was maybe even the last photograph ever taken of him before his passing was this photograph of him that I took holding a picture of himself as a younger man and those medals on him. And it was for a class project uh, while I was at UBC. After he passed, I looked at this photograph and I thought, wow, this photograph is extra special because now he's no longer with us. But also there's so many questions to this photograph. Why is he wearing his medals when he never did? Who is this man in this photo? Why did he never talk about the war? Another project that kind of came along was uh, I had to make a short film and I thought, wouldn't it be nice to talk to some other veterans on Vancouver Island or in Vancouver who might want to share some of their stories and maybe were like my grandpa who never talked about it for whatever reason. I soon found that, yeah, a lot of them were like my grandpa. They had the same kind of sense of humor, the same kindness, the, the same maybe silence when it came to the war. I was surprised at how these men welcomed me into their lives, opened up in terms of some of these stories that they hadn't shared for 75 years. And this curiosity to learn more and figure out why these men and women didn't really share their story inspired me to keep doing interviews they would tell me like oh if you ever go further than bc i got a friend in alberta or, or a friend in toronto who would certainly love to talk to you and i started to collect the lists of names that's when i decided to quit my job move out of my place in vancouver and get a small van and drive across the country to collect some of these stories and i'm so glad i decided to do that because the sad fact is, so many of these people i spoke to are no longer with us and I think it gave them a bit of closure near the end of their life to share their story once and for all with somebody who is a lot younger, who is interested in now with the idea that this story is going to be preserved in one of the, the biggest museums in Canada in terms of the war. And hopefully continue that legacy of hearing these stories and remembering these people who fought and reflecting on it when it comes to Remembrance Day.
1: Can you discuss the challenges that these veterans face in sharing their experiences, especially those that were traumatic?
0: It was on this trip that I got this story. and It was a gentleman in uh, London, Ontario. And he told me that when he came back from the war, he was actually on D-Day. So that was a pretty um, big day and a lot of traumatic things experienced then. He told me he knew that there was something that was wrong with him mentally, and he could acknowledge this. And I guess at that time, it was very much these men and women just swallowed their pride and got on with life. But he needed to do something if he wanted to continue living and going back and reentering society. So he went to Halifax where he was a ship docked and he saw somebody at the hospital, a psychologist. And he told the psychologist a story and the psychologist basically plain out told him, he says, I understand what you're experiencing. I, I see that you're not the same person that you were, but the fact that you can speak and tell your story and articulate it the way you can, I can't help you. There is so many more people who are worse than you who can't speak, who are traumatized beyond re-entering society. And we just don't simply have the funds or the time to treat somebody like you. So I'm, I'm so sorry, but that's just the way it is. So there wasn't this conversations that we have now or, or funding about mental health or being able to deal with some of these issues. He seems to be doing great, but I don't know his daily struggle, but he's able to share his story. And I think now he's 100. He's just an example of someone who did try and seek help and was turned away. Now, that's was an interesting story because I hadn't really heard that many. So many of these men that I talked to, They didn't even seek help because they were told, okay, when you're discharged, you you get to keep your uniform, you're maybe given some medals, a bit of money to buy some new clothes. You had to find work. You had to go to your small town and see who was hiring. Maybe the place that you worked for before, like the tire factory, would hire you back after, because there was this promise that if you came back, you'd get your old job. A lot of them just had to suck up whatever their mental health challenges they had and what they had witnessed and just put it in a box and hide that box away. And I think also it was this idea that I didn't have it that bad. Someone else had it worse. Maybe even that like their families wouldn't really understand what they went through that made them silent. And that silence continued for it's crazy to think about, but that silence continued for 70 to now almost 80 years. And it's crazy to me, but it does make sense once you talk to them, but like how many times these veterans have said, you're the first person I've talked to about some of these things Or nobody knows this, not even my wife or my kids. It's a tremendous honor but a tremendous pressure for me too to make sure that I'm capturing it the way that it should be captured, that I'm treating them with as much respect as possible. When I do these interviews, I'm trying to give them as much space as possible and as much time as possible. When I first started this project, I tried to even schedule like three in a day, but I soon realized that's not enough. I I never want to rush them. So I often come to this person's home and this veteran's home and I spend sometimes like as much as five or six hours with them. Not always. And it takes some time to really get those stories out. You're not just going to sit in front of them and they're going to tell you everything. Slowly but surely it comes out. And there are times when it doesn't, the story doesn't come. And I know that they saw a lot, but and they agreed to do the interview, but they realize it's not a place that they want to go. And I'm totally okay with that. I always say, you just tell me however much you want to tell me. I'm, I'm never going to push you. I'm never going to ask you questions that's going to make you too uncomfortable. I can usually gauge at this point now, like how the comfort level is. And even if they can tell me like a story about their buddies, like a, a joke or a, some laugh they had in a break to, between battles, like to me, that is gold. And that is something that's still worth preserving, even if it doesn't show the horrors of war. Like that still shows what it was like, the experience of a man during World War II. And that's the stories that we're losing so fast.
1: Tell us about uh, meeting Charlie Hammerton.
0: Charlie is a special veteran. He turns 103 in January, if you can believe it. He lives in Penticton, B.C. You speak with him, and it's like we're talking right now. Like he's able to just tell a story so easily. Charlie is an interesting one because he was in a tank during the war. It was interestingly rare to find men that were in tanks. He was a wireless operator and a loader. So the tank has that big gun that you see on the end of it. And it also has a machine gun. So Charlie's job is to load the ammunition for those weapons. And also he's on the wireless set communicating with other tanks. I actually hadn't realized this until I talked to him, but you can't actually really see what's going on when you're in the tank, when you're in that position. The driver can see where he's going, of course, but the position of where the wireless operator is, the only way you can see outside is if you use like a little periscope that will, it's very limited vision in itself, but you're mostly in darkness hearing what's around you, hearing what the people are saying in your, in your headphones, but you're going to this battle blind. Some of the biggest stories of fear revolve around the unknown. Where are we going? What are we doing? He said that he joined the group, I think in France and carried with the regiment through France, through Belgium, the Netherlands, and eventually Germany. But he says, I saw all these places, but I didn't actually know where I was because I didn't actually see outside the tank. There's shells that are firing, that are exploding next to the tank. Luckily, like a lot, the tank can withstand a lot. So they would, even if you got hit by some of these shells, the tank would still be okay. Thankfully, his tank was okay. What's really interesting about that, hearing from Charlie, is you really get like that first-person perspective of what it was like inside a tank in the Second World War. You're a group of five men, and you got to work together as a team, seeing the damage that was done to other people. They were on a break, and there was about five of them just hanging out between their tanks, and a shell came, and the shrapnel from the shell hit one of the five guys and killed him just instantly. And there was nothing they could do. It happened, and nobody else was even scratched. Even if you did everything you are supposed to do, like, you could still, in an instant, be gone just like that and lose one of your friends. I hope
2: nobody ever has to see that go through that. There's one always one saying, there's no glory in war. I always remember a quote that Eisenhower made, there's no winners in war. You might use the battle, but you don't in a war, because what you've blown to pieces, you got to rebuild. So you, you got to pay one way or the other, haven't sure, you? You know, that's the trouble of war. That's what's going on now, which is absolutely horrible, just horrible. And you know, like even on Armistice day, they hold remembrance for the army. But this one thing I've in and this isn't in my own pen, I said there's a lot of people that we don't think about that we gotta remember. That is the mothers and fathers, wives and husbands, that are all back there, but their young son, 18, 19 years, is over there. What about the children, young people that have been killed and wounded and had nothing to do with this damn thing? You know, when you look at the whole picture. Armistice Day is not a celebration, it's a remembrance. Not be that remember me because I got back safely. Remember the poor buggers that were left there. You know, and
0: uh, they give up everything so we can have what we have today. What's also cool about him is he's from the Grenadier Guards and I met two other gentlemen from the Grenadier Guards this trip. I was able to connect all three of them together, so they all connected on the phone and they didn't actually know each other during the war. They are all in the same regiment but in different tanks. And now I guess they talk on the phone and kind of share war stories, so that's cool. And that's another kind of more rare, but an interesting part of my project is the ability to connect some of these veterans together who are still living.
1: When Today in BC continues, Eric Brunt shares more of the more than 500 stories of veterans he has gathered.
3: Get fast access to breaking news by signing up now to Black Press Media's free newsletters and stay informed with all the latest news delivered directly to your inbox. You'll have access on any device, so you never have to miss out again on the information you need to know.
1: I'm Peter McCulley. Today in BC is a Black Press Media podcast. Eric, when you interview veterans from different ethnic or cultural backgrounds, does the
0: perspective change or differ? I would say the perspective changes quite a bit. The hard thing is that for this project, I wanted it to be as diverse as possible. When I first started this project as a naive university student, I just thought it was like men in the war. I soon found out that women were in the war as well, as many as 50,000 of them. Uh, I also just associated the veteran with being like this white, Anglo-Saxon man. I soon found out that, yeah, Black Canadians served, Chinese Canadians, Indigenous veterans. I think the group, of the minority I spoke with, other than the woman, but the ethnic minority I spoke with the most would have been the Indigenous veterans. I found that with them during the war, they were treated very much with respect in their group. They were treated really as equals. Like As soon as they put on that Canadian uniform, they were all in this together. And this is coming from some of these veterans would come from communities that maybe some people went to residential schools or they were discouraged from using their native language and were forced to learn either English or French. And then all of a sudden they're met with this acceptance, which is incredible. What I found with these veterans is that the heartbreaking stories was after the war. I interviewed this one veteran by the name of Justin Roy and he was with the artillery and he actually served on D-Day. So he's really one of the guys that would have faced the real brunt of the front. He was wounded, and so spent many weeks in the hospital recovering from those wounds, and that his wounds were so severe that he was not unable to join his unit afterwards. He came back from the war to Ontario, went to the bar with his buddies. They're all getting beers, celebrating. I guess this was, he had come back around the same time that the war was ending. And the waitress there says, you are not welcome here to him. And the reason for that is because with some of the legislature at the time, Indigenous people were not allowed to be in establishments where they served alcohol or were not even allowed to consume alcohol in any quantity. The waitress essentially told Justin, you have to get out of this bar. You can't be here. So Justin describes this moment of having to get up in front of all his friends who are just enjoying a beer, celebrating the war, and with his head down has to walk out of the entire bar, be by himself on the street. It's such a sad story because here is a real Canadian hero who put his life on the line, almost died from the injuries serving Canada, and he comes back home, and that's the way that he's treated. A lot of the Indigenous veterans weren't allowed to join legions, and they weren't given the same veteran benefits that the other men were given. They weren't even told that they existed. So as a result of this, I think it wasn't until 2004, 50 years after, 60 years after, The government said, okay, we made a mistake. You Indigenous veterans weren't given the same benefits that others were. There was a big settlement where they received, I believe, $20,000 each. It's a bit of money, but it still doesn't quite sit right. A lot of these men didn't even get the settlement because they had passed away before this time, maybe from their war injuries too. So it's really hard to hear that mistreatment of the Canadian veterans in Canada. One of the veterans even told me, his name was Philip Favell, and he returned to Saskatchewan to his reserve. Like, the only time he had left his reserve was to go fight. He was also there on D-Day. And he was an ammunitions driver, so he was driving this truck that was, like, full of ammunitions. So if he was ever hit, the whole truck would explode. He survived the whole war, never was injured. His windshield got smashed once, made it all the way to Germany, gets back to the reserve in Saskatchewan. Sweetgrass First Nation, it's called, and that's where I interviewed him. I went to the reserve to, to speak with him. And at that time, when he returned is the the time when children from that community were being sent to residential schools. And he says he could not believe he had just spent a couple of years of his life fighting this injustice and this cruelty towards one specific group of people. In the case of Germany, a few different groups of people that were being persecuted because they were different. And to find that same sort of evil in Canada, he said it was just beyond belief for him to even comprehend. The Indigenous veterans really stand out because of that.
1: Can you describe the emotions and reactions you've witnessed while hearing these stories from
0: these veterans? There was a veteran in Chilliwack, Walter Georgeson, and he was with the Royal Winnipeg Rifles who landed on D-Day. I think he lasted about two or three days before the Germans actually took him prisoner and he was a prisoner of war for the rest of the war. We were getting through his story and I can tell he's a bit hesitant. And bear in mind, this is maybe my 25th interview, so I'm not quite honed my skills They asked him, okay, so tell me a bit about being captured and being a prisoner of war. And he just completely shut down and was just like, I can't say anymore. Like, I can't answer that question. You got We got to change the subject. And so then it's like this tiptoeing on eggshells. There's an elephant in the room that we can't address. And that was very challenging. I felt bad, I think, because I was like, I hope that I didn't make him go a place he didn't want to go. One of the reasons that really kept me going on this project was talking with these veterans and maybe they'd become emotional. Maybe I had to come emotional. And at the end of the interview, they say to me, thank you so much for coming and uh, wanting to hear my story. Like I was reluctant at first to talk to you, but I'm so happy you came. And it was that, I guess, maybe in a way, it was maybe a little bit of therapy to them in terms of being able to finally get this off the chest or being able to go into that much detail with someone that really knows. Like when I started this, I knew nothing, but now I really, I know the lingo, I know the regiments, I know where they were. So that, I think that was one of the biggest motivators was hearing how thankful they were that I was there to talk to them. And at the end of the interview, leaving with a friend. And that's what's been one of the hard parts is like making all these friends and then sadly never getting to see them again or hearing about them passing away a year later. That's really hard. But at the end of the day, there was now going to be a record of their experience that was going to be in the War Museum in Ottawa that people could hear and hopefully learn that how terrible war is and that by hearing these firsthand accounts, how something like this should be avoided at all costs.
1: You mentioned Charlie Hammerton was 103. Yeah. How old is the oldest vet you'd have had chance to sit down and talk with?
0: The oldest veteran I ever interviewed was this gentleman by the name of Ruben Sinclair. He actually just passed away. He was 111. He was going to turn 112 in December. He was so much older than all the other veterans that when I interviewed him, I always see a photograph of what they were like when they were younger men. And usually they're just boys, 18 years old, 17 years old. But he was 30, I think, when he joined. So there's a photograph of him in his early 30s. Ruben was verified as the oldest living veteran in Canada. So it was pretty interesting to have spoken with him. And he had two pieces of advice that I remember asking, like, how do I live as long as you do? He was a Jewish gentleman, which makes it also interesting. His two pieces of advice were don't stress. And I thought, okay, well, that's easier said than done, but he says, yeah, just try and live your life with as little stress as possible because everything's going to work out. And I thought, okay. So I, I actually try and think of that sometimes when I'm really stressed out, I'm like, remember what Ruben told you, don't be stressed and live a longer life. And the other thing was invest your money. So invest your money young. And so I, I haven't really had that much money to invest right now. So maybe that will happen when I'm a bit older, but I, I imagine when you lived to 111, your investments you made as a young man have probably paid off pretty well. So those are two pretty funny pieces of advice, but uh, I at least try and live by one. Maybe I'll try and live by the other as I get older.
1: Ruben said, live stress-free and then went to war.
0: Yeah, exactly. It's interesting.
1: Some very powerful stories that you've run across. Uh, one was George Brewster, who had an account of POW camp.
0: I think with the general public, a lot of the time, what is associated with the Second World War is the Holocaust and concentration camps where Jewish people and other minorities lost their lives. With the Canadian experience, there wasn't really very many Canadians who got to see these things. When they joined the war, they weren't aware that that these concentration camps existed. So with George Brewster, he's one of the few Canadians that would have witnessed firsthand the liberation of some of these concentration camps.
3: Of all the things I saw during the war, Buchenwald was the worst. It made me sick. I threw up. I was crying. I couldn't stand it. I was then just turned 23. I couldn't believe that people could do what they did. We heard that there were a lot of people up there starving, so we collected boxes from home. We just put them in there in a truck. We didn't even try to sort them out or anything. We were being fed enough, it might not have been great, but it was okay. Those guys were starved to death. We took the boxes right there to the camp and just let them sort it out because a lot of them were too far gone, the food was too late, and they were writhing on the streets. And we had to spray ourselves, because I remember the time, at that time, I must have been, no, I was wearing long pants. I had, I know I had to spray myself with, I called it DT12 or something. It was like uh, an insecticide of sorts, like he'd use for fleas or mosquitoes or whatever. And we sprayed our garments and everything because it was so filthy and the place was so drastic and there's piles of bodies. And I've seen pile of bodies where there's, 56 laid just along like 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9. Read down 56 and then straw and then another 56 and then straw and then another 56. And every one of them had been shot in the back of the head. I don't know. And yet after the war, I found that some of the people I was drawn closest to were German pilots. A lot of them were Christians, you know. They were different. Not all the same, but they were different. They had a higher code of ethics. And they were there because they had to be there. And it was their country. And no matter what the reason was, it was going to be shot at. And they had to fight their motivations were different. And some of our soldiers and airmen and so on also were like that. They were just along for the ride and they could get a job in the services doing certain things and that. But what the fact is we needed them all. We need them all. Those things have to be done. And if people all work together, There's literally no stopping us. We're created to work that way and to work together as teams and show respect for each other, to love each other, and to, to do what we can for others who are afflicted or hurting.
0: I didn't ask him this question, but I wonder whether it made him proud to be Canadian and proud to have been one of the first people to save these people. I don't think he ever talked about that. George Brewster was a Spitfire pilot. And what his job was is he would be flying close to the front line and trying to blow up like trains carrying munitions or even troops to, that, that were German trains or other supplies. I think when you're firing at a train, you're not really sure, is there people that I'm harming? What is the extent of the damage I'm doing? You're just trying to destroy this target and make sure that you don't get shot at. And I think after the war, he did struggle with some of these feelings. And I wonder if with him particularly if seeing the concentration camp not help with that. But I do know with George, he did find friendship with other Germans after the war. And I think that really helped him understand that they were just men too, and they were just doing a job. But the Germans who were actually fighting a lot of the time were very similar to the Canadians in that they had moms, fathers, girlfriends, children, and they were just trying to stay alive as well. So the blame didn't necessarily lie in the German people, but more so in the leadership that caused them to be there.
1: You had the opportunity to interview Jesse Swale, also from British Columbia, uh, former Wren.
0: The women are an interesting story. 1.1 million Canadians that served, 50,000 of those being women. And because of, I guess, women outliving men, their longevity, there's still a little over 9,000 war service veterans left, both Second World War and Korea. There's a little over a thousand women out of that number. So one in nine of these war service veterans are women. But As a result, a lot more of these stories are coming forward, one of them being the Wrens, the woman who served in the Navy. They were usually put at places where there would be a lot of shipping activity. She did think that she would be a war correspondent (laughs) and reporting on some of these things that were happening. The Navy had different thoughts for her, and she became more so someone that dealt with everyone's file. So she was the one that would write out where everybody was, if they had come into that base, where they were going, what ship they were attached to. When these men went on the ship, she would send all their files to the ship so that they had them. One of the more interesting stories she told was with a ship that left Sydney, Nova Scotia called the Schwinnigan. This was a ship where all the men had come for, I believe, a short rest in Sydney, and they were responsible for kind of protecting the ferry that went between Sydney and Port of Basque, Newfoundland because that was still a very active route. There were a lot of submarines also in that area, just off the coast of Canada. Jesse had the opportunity to meet some of these men. Even though you were not in a combat role, you were still very close to war. There were still threats, you're still losing people that were close to you. It's through these stories of women who served that we get this different perspective of maybe being involved, but also feeling that you were in danger and feeling that you were contributing Jesse is one of those people that contributed.
4: We'd had a dance that night, the Rens had, and the sailors would come off whatever ship was in the harbor and dance with us. And uh, the men from the Sherwin again, came up and danced in our rec hall with us. And then, you know, we had this big thing all over the place called loose lips sink ships. So they weren't to say a word about the fact that they were shipping out at midnight. But we all knew. We all knew they were shipping out at midnight. And they did apparently ship out that night. And when they would ship out, their records would go with them on board. And I would have written them up to date, and they would go on board. And, of course, the ship never came back. And they were escorting the ferry from North Sydney to port of basque And they got to port of basque That was known. But they never got back. And it wasn't known until a U-boat was captured and hauled into Sydney Harbor. In the captain's log, he had written that they had destroyed the HMCS Schwinnigan and all hands had gone down. And so until then, we didn't know what had happened to the Schwinnigan. It was a terrible time around the base. You couldn't talk about it. You weren't allowed to. And, you know, we had blackouts at night, because they, There were U-boats in the Cabot Strait and in the Gulf of St. Lawrence. Those U-boats were lurking around all the time. We were at lunch when we heard the news on the radio. We had a radio up on the shelf in the lunchroom. And over came the word that the war was over. That was a mess hall full of wrens. I don't know how many long tables, (laughs) wrens on both sides. I just remembered this now, when the word came over the radio, the war has ended. One wren got up and started to sing, Land of Hope and Glory, and (laughs) I'm going to cry now. We all got up and sang, Land of Hope and Glory, that whole mess hall full of women, all with the tears running down. I'll never forget that as long as I live land of hope and glory
0: I don't know it don't you can you, can you sing it at I all? I can't
4: sing anymore oh. land of hope and glory mother of the free how can we extol thee who are born of thee <laughs> It wider wider and wider shall thy bounds be set God who made thee mighty, make thee mightier, yes. And it goes on and on in a land of hope and glory. It's very British.
1: Eric, have you witnessed any generational connections or bridges being built through these interviews? Perhaps there are other family members present when these stories are being told and passed down?
0: I'm 30 years old now. A lot of us who do have grandparents who served in the war. We don't really know what they did. I didn't know what my grandfather did. By doing these interviews, if there was any grandchildren present, which sometimes there were, it created an interest in them in terms of what their family member did. It made them realize that their grandmother or grandfather maybe just weren't this older person that they didn't really hang out with too much, but was this incredible person who risked their life to serve Canada for someone to say, okay, my grandmother was a Wren. I know that she was stationed in Sydney. So they can go in and type in keywords and they'll hear about her dancing with the men of the Schwinnigan the night it went down. And I think those firsthand experiences really help those stories come alive. And the sad fact is as Remembrance Days pass, there's going to be fewer and fewer of these veterans left. And I think it's up to us now to make a more conscious effort to learn their stories so that when there are none left, we can still picture someone who served maybe a family member, maybe just someone we've heard an interview of, and really think of what they did to make us the country we are today and to ensure the freedom we have today. If we can hold on to a personal story and put ourselves in their shoes, that's really helping, and that's really making sure that we hold on to that history and don't lose it, which I think is quite possible if we don't make the conscious effort.
1: I'd like to thank Eric Brunt for being with us on this edition of Today in BC. If you have suggestions or comments, send a voice message to podcast at blackpress.ca. You may be part of our podcast mailbag segment. You'll find today in BC Podcasts on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, iHeart, YouTube, and Google Podcasts.
3: Search, browse, buy. Black Press Media brings you today's drive. Find your new vehicle on our exclusive platform and get driving. At todaysdrive.com, you'll have access to inventory across B.C., where you can easily find a vehicle that fits your needs and gets you where you need to go in comfort. With new and used vehicles from the dealership around the corner and dealers across B.C., the best venue to find your next vehicle is todaysdrive.com.